EM Board Bombs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast where board studying is now enjoyable and entertaining. My name is Blake Briggs, comma MD, and today we're joined by a special guest, Dr. Travis Smith. Comma Dio. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you adding your credentials. Hey, well, of course, yes. <laughs> For each 15 to 20 minute episode, you gain high yield board-relevant knowledge, knowledge for life as well. As we like to say, come for the stems, stay for the content. You can sign up on our website for free updates and episodes, printed handouts, free review quizzes. You can test your knowledge on topics by going to our website at emboardbombs.com. That is emboardbombs.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at emboardbombs. In the middle of this quarantine, there is no better time to listen to some podcasts and uh, read our handouts. So we got a patient who is 23 years old with no medical history. He's coming to the ED today with everyone's favorite complaint, dizziness. In fact, when he got to the, <laughs> when he got to the waiting room with uh, EMS, they actually delayed his triage because they saw five other chest pains first because they just didn't want to see the dizziness patient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they usually they usually sit around in the ER the longest. Yeah, yeah, they were hoping he eloped, but he eventually was bedded. <laughs> he states he came in from a U2 concert, actually. They're on tour again. But he left early after he started having difficulty ambulating during one of their songs. When you enter the room and introduce yourself, he looks up to you and says, Hello. Hello. I'm at a place called Vertigo. <laughs> His vitals are normal on arrival, and he has a rightward beating nystagmus, worse with head movement. Which of the following is suggestive of peripheral vertigo? Choice A, prominent nausea and vomiting is often present. Choice B, horizontal nystagmus is bidirectional. Choice C, symptoms worsen with head movement. Choice D, progressively worsening symptoms over 24 hours. Correct answer here is going to be choice A, prominent nausea and vomiting or classically associated with peripheral vertigo. Dr. Smith, you agree with that? I, I 100% agree, of course. And, awesome. and, and even to the point that he probably went to the same concert, that YouTube concert, that I can't delete it off my iPhone. I mean, it's in my music album and I can't delete it and I have no idea why I delete it and it pops right back up so yes it's a sign yes. <laughs> we would be honored if you would join us so uh, Dr. Smith is a, a Florida State University graduate from undergrad he graduated from LeeCom for medical school and he went to University of Florida Jacksonville for the uh, EM residency, fantastic program. He currently practices in Jenksville as a community ER uh, setting, and he is the regional dean for LECOM. And he also actively works with third and fourth year medical students, not only as a regional dean, but as an educator, both online and offline. He's an editor at the Human Diagnosis Project and CPS Clinical Problem Solvers. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, and he also edits with uh, Med Tweetorials, which is a fantastic med-ed online Twitter resource. Dr. Smith, we appreciate you joining the Ian Bombs team today for a very difficult topic, but uh, thanks for being here. Oh, yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, this topic is um, confusing and often, you know, elicits uh, dizziness myself when, when trying to talk to <laughs> patients, 100%. It's probably one of the most confusing things that ask patients questions about what's going on with them that confuses us as well. So. And why is that? Let's get into that. Why, why do you think... The, what's the issue, I guess, with approaching these patients initially that people fall into, the trap that providers fall into, and then why do you think it's such a problem? Probably a problem with describing it because it's one of those, uh, you know, they call it your sixth sense. You know, it, it kind of 
works in the background and you really don't right. know how to describe it until it goes wrong. And for most people, it doesn't. And so when it does mm-hmm. happen, people have a million different ways of describing you know, what it is. And it often changes when you ask them, you know, five to 10 minutes later, or right after your attending comes in to ask them what's going on. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So about 4 million visits in the ED nationwide are for quote unquote dizziness or vertigo. The problem I think we have is that we are as providers describing dizziness in the wrong way and asking the wrong questions. 50% of patients change their answer to their description of dizziness within minutes. I used to do that all the time. I mean, I used to ask them, you know, can you tell me, Same. are you are you lightheaded or are you dizzy like the room spinning? And, you know, that used to be, you know, how I would approach it. I just, I had no idea that I was doing it completely wrong. And um, I just wanted to give a, a shout out to Azim Rathor, who's a third-year medical student at LECOM. And he put together a great handout on Vertigo that uh, myself and uh, Dr. Briggs um, edited. And you can find it on emboardbombs.com. So... Let's list the defining features uh, of all vertigo, and then uh, Dr. Smith's going to get into some of the differences between central and peripheral vertigo. As Dr. Smith said, it's one of our senses, one of our special senses, and because of that, it's this illusionary symptom of either false movement or false interpretation of our surroundings. And the defining features of all vertigo, no matter who the patient is, no matter what their cause of vertigo is, is that all vertigo has these three things, the three main features— one, it always worsens with head movement. No matter if you have central or peripheral vertigo, you should have some worsening with head movement. That cannot be confused with pre symptoms. It's not when you stand up that you get orthostatic and then faint. It's not like that at all. There shouldn't be any fainting with it. It should just be worsening of the sensation off-kilter movement. Yeah, so it's pointless to even ask that because, I mean, usually everyone's going to have that same symptom. Is it worse when you move, even if it's central or peripheral? I mean, you know, it, it, it's going to be there. So it's like one of the questions that you probably don't need to ask, even though you want to ask it so badly. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just itching to ask it. <laughs> so it never continuously lasts for more than a few weeks. That's just also kind of one of those things people don't really know about vertigo. Um, the body adapts to whatever vertigo there is, even if there's a stroke, even if there was some sort of brain tumor or lesion, the vertigo can come and go, you know, with certain exacerbations probably, but even central versus peripheral, it never lasts more than a few weeks. The body will adapt, even if it's a chronic lesion. And then lastly, if the patient has any dyspnea, palpitations, or chest pain in diaphoresis, which sound very concerning, uh, you'd be correct. This is not vertigo, and you should need to consider other diagnoses that are going on with the patient that may have caused them to come to the ED. So moving on, what are we looking for symptom-wise? Just in general, what are the symptoms? And this helps us frame, because when you're asking these questions about the associated symptoms and timing and triggers of vertigo, we need to first understand, what are you looking for? Yeah, and and I think one of the big things that we talked about before with uh, using, um, if you want to use a helpful mnemonic, either the a test, A-T-T-E-S-T, or titrate, you can use those to kind of separate these things into t- different buckets. So if you use the ATEST, the A-T-T-E-S-T, the A-T is for the associated symptoms, then you have the timing, then the triggers, and the exam signs, and, and get into testing. So if we want to break it up into buckets, the timing is important because if someone's coming in and they've had, you know, vertigo constant for, you know, over 24 hours, I think you can right there go and, and, and kind of point that into the acute vestibular syndrome bucket. You know, if the timing is, hey, this just started, uh, it's been going on for, you know, a couple minutes to an hour, 
and it's, you know, triggered, you know, you don't have it and then it's triggered by head movement, you can kind of put it in the bucket of the more episodic, benign causes. The chronic bucket would be, you know, if this has been going on for years, you know, they get it once a month, been going on for 20 years, you know, that's when you're getting into either like a vestibular migraine or someone who's had a prior episode of, you know, vertigo or a stroke and and they get it recurrently. Um, So if you could just break it down into that, into the different buckets, then you can kind of start looking into certain features that would kind of point it towards a more peripheral or a central lesion. Usually with peripheral, the the timing is going to be acute onset in seconds. It can be intermittent. It usually is going to resolve generally less than than six hours. And, And once you start getting symptoms that are approaching 12, 18, and 24 hours, the more likely is that it's going to continue to be persistent and it's going to fall under the... One of the acute vestibular syndrome buckets. The central cause is usually it's going to be more gradual onset. Um, it's going to be lasting, like I said before, you know, greater than 12, often more than 24 hours. And it, and usually people come in later in the course because it, it, it kind of will gradually get worse. And, and usually we, people don't present as early as they do with the benign positional vertigo and Meniere's disease. I don't know about you if you, you feel the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the intensity, you know, when, when I ask people about intensity, usually the central vertigo intensities are severe. I mean, it's, it's the point where they, they can't sit up. They have truncal ataxia. They can't even walk without assistance. You should never discharge somebody when, when they can't ambulate out of the ER. Uh, definitely don't wheel them out in a wheelchair. That's probably not a good thing to do. Whereas the uh, more peripheral causes, it, you know, it's usually mild to moderate, you know, but they are able to walk. They can tandem uh, on their own, maybe a little bit of assistance. Their symptoms aren't as intense. Sure. Except for the nausea and vomiting, usually. Except for the nausea and vomiting, yes. Definitely Which was intense. our correct answer. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, to summarize, I guess, what you're saying here, the peripheral is usually acute onset, it's rapid, it's intermittent, though, and it self-resolves within a few hours. And usually, if there is nystagmus, it's unidirectional, it's always horizontal, and it never has neuro findings, for the most part. And then, of course, associated symptoms would be intense nausea and vomiting. And as you said perfectly, they can tandem walk. They have symptoms with walking. They are provoked by movement, but they can walk unassisted versus the central uh, lesion or central vertigo patients, which have a more gradual onset. It's progressive. You know, it's classic of kind of a chronic insidious onset. It lasts greater than 24 hours, and they have much more severe intensity. They have much more concerning nystagmus, basically any other type of nystagmus. It could be vertical. It could be rotational. It could be horizontal, but bidirectional. And there are commonly associated neurological findings on the neuro exam. They have mild nausea, not not too bad compared to peripheral, and they can't walk at all, as you were saying. Is that a pretty good summary of everything? Oh, yeah, that's perfect. And once you're getting into the attest um, history, the E for exam signs, I think that's when you're you're really finding very specific findings that aren't really as sensitive, but when they're there, that's, you know, when you start moving on to more central causes. And, and like you mentioned, the nystagmus, you know, if you're looking at someone in there and they have spontaneous nystagmus, you know, that's vertical, that's not a good thing. If they have any of the the deadly Ds like diplopia or dysarthria, dysphagia, dysphonia, th- those are not good signs that point to a peripheral etiology. And, and anyone who has that, I mean, you, you need to start, you know, going right to imaging. The deadly Ds. <laughs> the deadly Ds. I haven't heard that. Where'd you learn that? <laughs> um, <laughs> curbsiders. <laughs> That's fantastic. I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> oh man. Uh, and also the wheelchair point was really good. You know, uh, so often, uh, we do these neuro exams. And by the way, all these patients should be getting a full neuro exam. And how how too often do we see every day in the ED where we forget to walk a patient as part of the neuro mm-hmm. exam? 
Yeah, it, it's it's effort. You know, you gotta um, you gotta lower down the bed rails. You gotta unhook their blood pressure cuff. Right. You know, some, sometimes they're IV, and you know, if they're on a you know pump, then you, then you're responsible for hooking it back up. I mean, you know, it's just so easy not to do it, but you have to do it. And you gotta motivate the patient too. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. When they're when they're dizzy, <laughs> and the, last, the last thing you want is vomit on your shoe. So right. <laughs> so moving on, uh, you know, notice already that we haven't done two things. One, we haven't asked any silly little questions about sensation of room spinning <laughs> yeah number two notice how we haven't really mentioned getting to the actual diagnosis yet we've been mentioning ways to describe peripheral and central vertigo and the buckets as dr smith says which are just so important that is kind of part of our workup so far notice how we haven't anchored on anything or saying this is what you look for when you want to see a stroke this is what you look for when you want to see bpbv or tia or vestibular migraine Notice how we haven't done that yet, and that's critical. So this is kind of the way to go with this, with this complex complaint. You have to have the systematic way of at least putting things in the correct buckets and putting them in the correct side of peripheral versus central, and then going through kind of common causes, as we'll talk about in a minute. Before we get there, though, I want to talk more about the HINTS exam. This gets a lot of attention. It's on board exams. Dr. Smith, why don't you tell us more about the HINSA exam? Yeah, and, and if you um, go to the website, we have linked some really good videos yes. on there. And I'm not, I'm not sure if most all of them are from Peter Johns, and, he, and he's one of the guys who's really taken ownership of uh, vertigo and, and the HINSA exam in, in the emergency medicine world. But really what we're wanting to do with the HINSA exam— niche. That, that's his niche, yes. I'm glad it's, he does it. it. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I, I, I never would have gotten into it. I mean, I mean yeah. <laughs> teaching myself how to do this stuff, I mean, you know, kudos to, to him for doing this. Um, but HITS stands for Head Impulse, Nystagmus, and Test of Skew. We are using this only on patients who have persistent ongoing vertigo and spontaneous uh, nystagmus. You know, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be doing on this person who's coming in and saying they have, you know, triggered vertigo when they're rolling over in bed and they're coming into you feeling fine because you will be misled. So it's important. They need to have spontaneous nystagmus or persistent ongoing vertigo. With all these tests, you know, they only work if you're doing it on the right population. Um, Just like you wouldn't want to do a Dix-Hallpike test on someone with uh, cerebellar stroke because all you're going to get is vomit on your shoes. Um, (laughs) It's an ongoing theme. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Just remember. (laughs) And and one of the reasons why this exam caught fire, it's basically shown that it's outperformed MRI in the first 12, 24, and 48 hours. When these uh, neuro-ophthalmologists are doing this exam, and I mean, it works great. The only downside is that if you're not a trained person in it, the sensitivity goes down and in, into like the probably high 70s and, and low 80s. So it's important, you know, to practice this, to watch videos and, and to know how you're doing it in order to, to use it in practice, you know, to rule out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And could you go through kind of the easy way to remember the interpretation of the HINSA exam? A good way is to remember infarct. And I is for impulse, N, normal, fast phase, alternating, or refixation on cover test. So if any of those findings occur on the exam with acute vestibular syndrome, you should consider a central cause of vertigo. And, and most of them are, are, are infarcts themselves when we're finding that. Sure. Absolutely. And again, that mnemonic with everything else is on our website. And you can find our vertigo handout on the website as well. In general, younger patients with acute sustained vertigo symptoms, symptoms suggestive of peripheral vertigo, no focal neurological deficits, they do not need advanced imaging. 
You mean no CT scan? You don't no have to CT, CT all of them? <laughs> yeah. The CT scan. I'm glad we talked about this. So the, you can expect improvement in young people with, we just said, with those symptoms within a few days' time, maybe less. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is CT. And by the way, as a quick part of our workup, if you, these vertical patients come in, you've done your history and exam taking, and you're thinking about working up other things, if the patient's story is unclear, then you know we generally do perform some sort of syncope workup to work up other non-vertigo causes, such as EKG, finger stick glucose, you know, CBC, BMP, maybe urine studies, obviously a beta HCG pregnancy test if it's a female and it was applicable for syncope. That's reasonable. It's good to have a good differential. However, none of that's going to help you for the actual vertigo workup itself. Speaking of things that don't help you at all, <laughs> let's talk about CT. How, how good is it? It's pretty awful. So I'm glad you're asking me because I want to be the one to bring the bad news. So the diagnostic yield for CT ordered in the ER is like 2%. That's insane. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, my goodness. It's like 1.5% for emergent findings. So, like, that is insane. I can't, I can't get over that percent. 2%. Uh, oh, my God. When it's worse than a coin flip. Yeah. Yeah. yeah by a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it has low sensitivities for acute ischemic stroke about 10% of the time. One, because CT is not good for acute stroke. We all know that. And also because the stroke you're looking for is a little bit more difficult to find as it's not located in the cerebrum. Dr. Smith, tell us more about where we should go with our imaging. If we, are, if we are thinking about imaging, they have, one, symptoms of concerning for central vertigo, or two, focal neurological deficits associated with vertigo. Deadly Ds. What are we aiming for? The deadly, the deadly Ds. What are we aiming for here with our advanced imaging? I, I think the, the main thing is if they need imaging, they need an MRI. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it has to be a diffusion-weighted imaging. And mo most of the time, that's what everyone's doing nowadays. Mm -hmm. So you can consider doing a CTA or an MRA um, if you're looking for any type of, uh, you know, uh, vertebral artery dissection. I mean, if someone has neck pain and dizziness and some, you know, diplopia, um, if there's history of trauma or something like that, you want to, you probably would want to image their vertebral arteries. But just going right to CT scan is not the right answer. They need an MRI because, you know, if the, the scan's negative, which we've shown that it is, and about you know 98% of the time, you should not be discharging them home just because their CT scan is normal. You need to get an MRI, and um, you know at the same time you probably need to be doing a Hints exam. You know if you have a Hints exam that is abnormal and a normal MRI, you probably should you know still keep them and and have them followed up for a repeat MRI and have a neurology see them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and yeah, that's what getting into the point here. MRI has its own pitfalls too. The limitations of MRI are still in the posterior fossa, just like CT. It's been shown to miss about 20%, which is still not good, in the first 24 hours, and another 10% in like the 48-hour period. Its max sensitivity is almost three days of symptoms. Thankfully, we do know patients in general, especially with central lesions, are more progressive. They're not going to come in the first hour of their symptoms. Uh, they sometimes ignore things, or they come in slightly later. These aren't the patients that have their whole left side of their body go numb. They have a stroke. They come in immediately. Uh, these patients are a little more insidious. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, the, actually, the last patient I had who had a, a, a stroke, uh, he actually had a, a, a brainstem infarct. A young guy um, had uncontrolled hypertension. He came in two days later. He mm -hmm. had, you know, acute onset of dizziness and trouble talking, one of the deadly Ds. And, um, <laughs> you know, his, his symptoms kind of were there, and they were progressively getting worse to the point where he couldn't walk. And then he had immediate signs on exam that something was abnormal, and uh, he ended up having a brainstem infarct. Oh, oh, God. Pont the, Pontine. How old was this guy? He was 44. Oh, that's frightening. 
<laughs> but you know, don't be don't be frightened because it's you know blatantly obvious when he looks at you and says, you know, I'm dizzy and I have mm-hmm. trouble talking. I mean, red flag, red flag. I mean, you know, you're 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 not doing a Dick's Hall pick on this gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> Let's mention something about my nystagmus. So first, checking for spontaneous nystagmus is important because that'll determine whether or not you know the direction you may go with the hints at Sam. And then you got to test the eye movements in all directions to see if the nystagmus changes direction. If you have a bidirectional nystagmus, that is extremely concerning for a central lesion, and it really is often a sign of stroke. Uh, that's why the answer choice is wrong, uh, suggesting that bidirectional nystagmus is uh, peripheral vertigo symptom. It is not. It is central. Horizontal nystagmus alone is suggestive of peripheral vertigo. Any other type of nystagmus is is central. And and what we name here with nystagmus, it's named for the fast movement, which means that it moves away from the affected ear, the affected vestibular nerve. So an example of this would be if you had a right-sided peripheral lesion, it would cause a leftward nystagmus. The fast movement is beating left. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And and that's so confusing just to kind of think about <laughs> things opposite is opposite, you know, but the best thing to do is, is check out the videos that we put on sure, absolutely. Um, online and, and just watch them over and over. It's more of a, you know, a, a repetition absolutely. and, and, and especially with performing the hints exam, you know, and, and looking at their nystagmus, that second part. Well, let's get into just briefly reviewing important causes of vertigo. And I want to kind of lump some things together here. Let's just name some of the things off and just kind of talk about some of the differences. So I want to lump BPPV together. That's the that's the most common cause overall of triggered vestibular syndrome. When people come in with a acute onset of less than one minute, short-lived episodes that resolve and they're triggered only by movement. That's BPPV. Different types. We're not going to get into that in the podcast. Or it's in our handout. But what are kind of the key things about these that we have to notice, Dr. Smith? Um, you know, one, that they're triggered by movements, you know, either sitting up, rolling over in bed, and, you know, diagnosis is, is not with a hints exam. It's, you know, doing a Dick's Hall Pike on them, sure. and, 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 and you treat them with an Epley maneuver. And I think the important thing with these people shouldn't go home with meclizine. These people should be treated with the Epley maneuver. It's one of the most highly studied physical exam maneuvers. It actually has a number needed to treat of 1.4. It's really um, good. It, I mean, it, it's really good. And, and you can do it right then and there. Right after you do that, you can go right into a epile maneuver. You just rotate their head to the left and kind of roll them around 270 degrees to the left side. And you can teach them how to do that exam as well. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, moving on, uh, just a couple of other things. So vestibular migraines, these have strict criteria for diagnosis. And that's just because of the, you know, the mimickers associated with migraines. Migraine, I've discovered, is one of the greatest mimickers of neurological symptoms. And in general, with a vestibular migraine, they have to have a history of known diagnosed migraines, not just I have, you know, headaches, which I call migraines, which so many patients do. They have recurrent episodes of vertigo. And really, the main thing is that they have certain migraine symptoms during the attack. So they're going to have the vertigo symptoms with a headache. And that's classically associated with a vestibular migraine. In general, these patients present with symptoms like acute vestibular syndrome bucket, Uh, they have abrupt persistent does not completely resolve uh, symptoms are greater than 24 hours typically, and they are treated well with migraine medications. Vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis, both of them we link together. Labyrinthitis is associated with hearing loss, classically on the board test questions, but in general, they both are pretty similar, and it's going to be an acute, benign, self-limited condition. It's always classically said on boards and tests back from medical school, this is like viral, post-viral, 
However, I found uh, that less than 50% of patients report a recent viral illness. How stupid. So unreassuring, you know. Uh, <laughs> everything we learned is a lie. I'm questioning everything now. Yeah, question everything. Um, this is going to be symptomatic management. And this again, this is one of those benign peripheral causes that we have to exclude from central and then we manage at home. We never get a sure diagnosis of vestibular neuritis. I can never confidently tell a patient this is 100% vestibular neuritis. And again, we're doing more of the, hey, I can promise you it's not this stuff, the central stuff. It's more of this. And then, mm-hmm. you know, symptomatic management at home. The, the vestibular neuritis patients, those are the ones that come in and, and they're in your your, spon- your acute vestibular syndrome buckets, you yes. know, just to re- recap. And, um, you know, they're going to have spontaneous, it's going to just come out of the blue, it's going to be persistent. So it's going to last, you know, 12, 24 hours, and then they're going to come into the ER. Mm -hmm. Um, Then these are the perfect people that you're going to be doing a HINTS exam on. And when you do the, when you do the HINTS exam, the HINTS exam on a patient with vestibular neuritis, their, the head impulse test is going to be abnormal. It's not going to be a a normal exam. So let's say it's vestibular neuritis of the right ear. You're going to take their head um, from midline and, and rotate it about 20 to 30 degrees to the left, and you're going to briskly rotate it um, midline, and their eyes are going to go past your nose, and they're going to saccade back. Mm-hmm. So th- this is the one where the HINTS exam is kind of going to help differentiate you from a more uh, central etiology. So that's what you should see with a vestibular neuritis or a labyrinthitis patient. Sure. And then the last two we're going to talk about here, one is just a brief line in mini ears disease which has so many little accents over the E's. I can't keep track, and they're all in different directions. But many years I have, disease, a, I have a hard time typing that on, on, me on too. The, uh, the iPhone. I can't find the, the, the appropriate you know, dashes above it. <laughs> it's awful. Uh, whoever named it, I don't know if Dr. Minier, if he was a, uh, if he was a doctor, but uh, shame on him. He probably just made it up as like a cruel joke. He probably, <laughs> he probably didn't have any accents over his E's. He's like, I'm just going to sound more sophisticated. <laughs> I should do that with my last name. It's so common. How you would Smith. It. <laughs> so uh, mini ears disease. It's it's one of those complex diseases. Again, it deserves its own PowerPoint and its own presentation, just for the fact it's on the boards all the time. In general, this is one of those rare diagnoses that is associated with transient twenty minute episodes of vertigo, hearing loss, and tinnitus or tinnitus if you're Canadian. So it's one of those three different things triad of symptoms. You know, conservative therapy, low-salt diet, avoid dietary triggers like caffeine and alcohol. In general, mecosine can be used occasionally if it's limited to a few days. We'll get to why that is in a minute. Dr. Smith will finish with that. That's Meniere's disease. If, if, you, if, if you had Meniere's and your um, ENT told you to stop drinking coffee, would you? I, I'm I don't not good either. What, what do you mean? Just intratympanic gentamicin. That seems very <laughs> benign. <laughs> that's the interventional therapy. Yeah, I know. That sounds uh, really tested well. <laughs> Uh, finishing up here is going to be cerebellar stroke, the big the big bad boy we worry about when we do these exams. I think if you polled any ER physician, they're worried. That's why they get these CT scans over the time. You know, they're like, oh, I want to look for the cerebellar stroke. Well, you're not going to find it with the CT as we already talked about. And in general, 80% of patients, greater than 80% of patients lack the classic findings of the deadly disease we talked about in limb ataxia, you know, clumsiness of the arms and legs, gait unsteadiness. In general, they're going to present just with subtle vertigo, nausea and vomiting, unsteady gait, and head motion and balance, the classic vertigo stuff. Well, you, you're telling me this. I have a shift to go into, and now seeing that, I am even <laughs> yeah, more Yeah, I know, nervous. right? Yeah. Can I call off? That dizzy patient's going to sit there for an extra half yeah, an hour exactly. now. I'm going to let the other, uh, the APP pick that one up. So. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so they'll sign it out to me later. Anyway, so cerebellar strokes, you know, these are hard to find. Uh, it's going to take a large amount of suspicion. And in general, they're going to have, as we talked about earlier, so where the, this is where the hints at Sam comes in handy. They're going to have a normal head impulse test, an abnormal test of skew, inability to sit with the arms crossed, and inability to walk without support. So really, again, this is where it just goes back to the basics of being a good physician which is walking all your patients. If you have a vertigo patient, especially, walk them. If they can't walk, you need to get imaging, and in this case, MRI, no more CT. MRI for these patients. So why don't we go ahead and just finish up here, Dr. Smith, I want you to finish up with some of the pearls of the treatment pearls. Uh, we've talked about a few of the major causes of vertigo, both peripheral and central. Why don't you get into kind of parting thoughts yeah, that, here, uh, treatment, when we wrap it up. Yeah, so important Know how to do the Epley maneuver. It's simple. It's easy to do. It's got a number needed of treat of 1.4. Use that instead of medications for your BPPV mm -hmm. patients. Meclizine is not an appropriate therapy for these pa uh, patients because of the d short duration of symptoms, and you need to let them to acclimate to this so they don't develop a chronic vestibular syndrome from this. If you do want to use it for someone who has Meniere's or an acute vestibular syndrome, it's okay to use Meclizine or Valium for you know up to three days, but after that, it's it's they, they need to adjust vestibular rehab exercises. You can look those up online as well. And uh, the patients can do those at home. A lot of times we print out a sheet or, you know, send them to a, a YouTube video to watch um, where they can do this stuff at home and, and, and have them follow up with their friendly ear, nose and throat colleagues. Awesome. And of course, central lesions, you know, depending on what you find on MRI, not CT, because you shouldn't be doing it. We're going to be talking about neurology or neurosurgery follow-up, depending on what you find, aspirin if there's stroke concern, and then, of course, symptomatic relief in the meantime. And since they're in the ED, you could always do IV antiemetics or, as we said earlier, Valium or other benzodiazepines, which can help with nausea. Really, nausea treatment is helpful. I've discovered that uh, even compazine can be helpful here, given it's a good antiemetic. It can cover ground for possibly treating vestibular migraine, if you suspect that. All right, let's wrap it up. Uh, we appreciate you again joining us, Dr. Smith. This has been another Board Bomb Delivered. And remember, you can find us on Twitter, and our handle is at EMBoardBombs. Also on Instagram as well. Giddy up. Giddy up. Let's go. Any parting words at all? Kramer's my favorite Seinfeld character. So, yeah, did I um, tell you who my favorite uh, artist was? No, who? It, uh, Vincent Van Gogh. Oh, really? Tell me more about yeah, him. Yeah, well, you know, I actually have his Starry Night photo on the back of my laptop. I really got interested in him because his, did you know his aunt's name, Aunt Verdi? No. Aunt Vertigo? <laughs> oh, my God, that's fantastic. <laughs> do you really have a Starry Night photo on your laptop? 100% I do. That's a beautiful painting. It's a shame he it cut is. off his ear. He really didn't like his vertigo, his aunt. I don't, yeah, he had some issues, definitely. Yeah. Good artist, though. All right, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.